This is Christian McBride, and you're listening to WBAI New York 99.5 FM and WBAI.org on the web. Welcome to City Watch on WBAI, here to start your day with news and insight about New York and the world around us. I'm your host, Jeff Simmons. Each week, my co-host David Brand and I strive to bring you perspective from those who shape our city, the elected officials and the policymakers, but also the experts and influencers and even everyday people that keep New York City chugging along. Given that 2020 will certainly go down in history as one of the most challenging periods America has ever faced, it is no wonder that no matter what topic that I discuss or my colleague David Brand discusses, that COVID-19 has exacted significant devastating impact. It's changed how our economy works or how our economy doesn't work, how our schools run or how they don't run and how we go about our everyday lives. So on today's show, I'm going to bring you conversations with several guests who are on the front lines of doing good in our city and how each of their sectors has been impacted by the coronavirus, some significantly forcing them and their organizations to adapt to this new world that we're all living in right now. Well, I'm going to talk in a few moments with someone about the 2020 census. And just note, you still have time to take part in the census. So he's going to give you this website address. I'm going to give it to you now so that you write it down. You hear it multiple times during the show. If you write down my, M-Y, 2020census.gov. I hope that by the end of this day, you'll take some time, just a few moments. It only takes about 10 minutes to fill out your 2020 census online. That's my2020census.gov. And I'm hoping that when you hear our conversation with Amit Singh Bhaga, that you will then say, you know what, I need to fill this out. I haven't done it yet. I only have a few weeks left. So I'm going to talk with Amit about how New York City has been responding, if it's on pace with the results we witnessed a decade ago when the last census took place. Then Joel Berg, a familiar voice here on WBAI, will join me to share with us the landscape of hunger insecurity in our city and in our country, and how the pandemic and the government's response have placed insurmountable obstacles before those already struggling to eat to put food on the table for them and for their families. And then, as a new school year approaches in just under two weeks, think of how this summer has flown by. We've got one more week before Labor Day. If you think about it, it's, it's just gone by so quickly. So as this new school year approaches, I'll talk with Penny Swift about how our schools are adapting to provide music education to students. Even though the virus has forced us to remain apart and has motivated the city school system to adopt a mixture of formats combining in-person and remote learning. Think back to when many of you might have been uh, in high school where you w- were part of music classes or, or picked up an instrument and what it was like learning in a classroom setting. You know, I did the clarinet, haven't done it in, well, decades, uh, but I did that in high school for several years and it helped to have someone there with me teaching me how to do this in person. So how do things like this change right now? Um, in only a few weeks, the 2020 census count is going to begin. I mean, we are now in the final stage, as I just mentioned a few moments ago, at the end of September, it, it stops. And the way this process is normally done has had to change significantly. I don't know if any of you have had people knock on your door to ask if you filled out the census and can they assist you with that? Did you get uh, did you get a mailing, the census form in the mail, and then you filled it out and mailed it back? Things were done differently this year. Pre-pandemic, there were a number of concerns, significant concerns, given that President Trump had uh, wanted to add a citizenship question to the census form that we would fill out. 
and that was seen by many as a way to suppress participation that in many communities like the one I live in here in Jackson Heights, Queens, where there's a significant immigrant population, the concern had been that this was an effort to support his other initiatives to uh, deport a number of individuals. And so there was a lot of concern about if I fill out the census, how will this information be used? Will it be protected? Will it be used to identify you know, me as, as another person filling this out, me, and then uh, remove me from the country or start those proceedings? And that, that's something that was a significant concern before. Then the pandemic hit, delayed not just our efforts, but a, a number of efforts in, in door knocking. And so uh, I'll talk with Amit Singh Baga about this in just a few moments. Uh, there, there was an article that I read out of Washington the other day that noted that about 38 million households in the country were still uncounted, and that worried state and local officials that many poor and minority households would be left out. So let's get right now to my first guest, Amit Singh Baga. He's the deputy director of the New York City Census 2020 office. In this role, he has overseen the bulk of the office's operations, in particular, the building and launch of the $19 million NYC Complete Count Fund. That's the nation's largest municipal investment in census-focused community organizing and the city's $8 million census media and advertising campaign. Now, he is a familiar face in government and politics because over more than a dozen years, Amit has held a number of different roles in government, on political campaigns, and in the nonprofit sector. And he's worked on policy development, legislation, and community organizing, as well as on press and communications. In the de Blasio administration, he previously served as Deputy Commissioner of Communications and Marketing in the Department of Social Services. And before that, he was Deputy Commissioner of External Affairs at the Department of Consumer Affairs. Amit Baga, welcome to City Watch. Thank you so much, Jeff. It's great to be back on with you. And I could have just read a lot more about your bio. You have a lot of accomplishments, but I'm going to get to the topic at hand. The latest participation in New York City, where have you been seeing the, the strongest and the lowest participation uh, in the census this season? It's a great question. Thank you so much, Jeff, and thank you for uh, hosting this very important topic on your program. Uh, and I'm glad to be speaking to you from neighboring Sunnyside. Um, <laughs> what we've seen in New York City is uh, uh, Queens is the greatest borough. Uh, what we've seen in New York City is that we really have um, a tale of many censuses here in New York, right? And that is largely because we are just as diverse as we are. We are just as complex as we are as, as a city. Um, and, you know, we have parts of the city that are far outpacing the, the self-response rate of the nation. Right now, uh, the citywide average here in New York, we are at 57.4%. The nation uh, is about eight, uh, eight, nine percentage points ahead of that. Um, and we do have pockets of the city that have responded really well. Co-op City in the Bronx, Starrett City in Brooklyn, uh, Stuyvesant Town and Peter Cooper Village uh, in Manhattan. In fact, uh, many of the tracks of Jackson Heights, uh, where you are resident, are among the strongest performing uh, areas of the city as well. And so, you know, we know here in New York City, we have lots of different places where folks have responded to the census uh, and, you know, taken the 10 minutes that it takes to just fill out the simple form. In other places, you you know, you take a five-minute dr uh, drive down from Jackson Heights uh, into neighboring Corona, and you're actually seeing some of the lowest self-response rates in the city. Uh, and we know this is the case uh, precisely because of the issue that you outlined at the top of your description of the census, which is that Donald Trump has spent the last four years trying to exclude, demean, and remove immigrants uh, from American society. And one of the key ways in which he's done this is by scaring immigrant communities into not participating in the census, even though there is absolutely no harm whatsoever that can come to anyone, even if you are undocumented as a result of participating in the census. And, and I'm glad you're talking about that because, you know, with this it, uh, presidential administration, you never know what's coming next. And I, and I always think, you know, right now we feel like this is safe. We can do this now, but you never know what his next initiative is going to be. How do we compare with the last census and where you saw both robust and weak participation here in the city? Absolutely. It's a great question. So I think in order to understand how we're doing as a city this year, it's actually first important to understand how we're doing as a nation. So last year, uh, excuse me, last census, obviously we were not in the middle of an unprecedented global pandemic. 
Um, and so the country as a whole really was much further ahead than it is this year when it comes to what is called self-response. Self-response is when a household um, responds on their own to the census. Now, in 2010, the only way that you could do this is by filling out the form you got in the mail and sending it back in. This year, for the first time, uh, the census has been conducted differently. This year, you can respond online very easily in just about seven or eight minutes. My2020census.gov, go online, uh, fill out some basic information about your household, submit, and you're done. You can also call uh, a toll-free 1-800 number that's actually available in 12 different languages uh, that allows you to complete the census over the phone. The entire country is currently uh, about, um, you know, somewhere in the 60 uh, or so, 60 mid-60s range in terms of self-response. Before the door knocking started in 2010, the country was about 76%. So, you know, in general, we are, we are all further behind. Um, when the door knocking period started in 2010, New York City was at about 62%. Today, New York City is about 574 the difference between New York City and the nation back in 2010, when the door knocking period started, was 14 percentage points, 62 versus 76. This year, we have been aggressively closing the gap between New York City and the nation. We are currently uh, just about eight percentage points um, behind the, just under eight percentage points behind the nation right now. And what that means is really significant because the census is a national competition for resources and representation. All of the trillions of dollars that uh, are spent on all of the goods and services that we all rely on every day, the representation that we have in Congress, how we do in the census is really based on how we're doing not only in general, but relative to other states and relative to the rest of the country. So the fact that we have actually aggressively closed the gap between ourselves and the country this year uh, really is an accomplishment. And, you know, we need continue closing that gap in the next 30 days to make sure that we have a 100% count here in New York City. And, you know, you and I have both mentioned what we thought some of the concerns had been that might have caused uh, less participation. But amid the pandemic, uh, is, you know, is that how significant a factor has that been in a weaker participation? For instance, I had read pieces in the New York Times uh, over the summer, I believe, about how many New Yorkers were, you know, fleeing New York City. They were staying outside of New York City during this time. So, you know, that's what's concerning to me is, well, even if you're not in New York City, you could still fill out the darn thing online. So what are some of the factors that are, you believe are responsible for the lower rates? It's a great question. We know for a fact that the pandemic has had a really problematic impact on the census nationwide. You know, the fact that the nation is currently at 64.7 percent is an indication of that. Here in New York City, the problem has been really acute, and it's been really acute in two ways. One, literally the day that the census went online, the very first day that you could start responding to the census, is the day that the city mayor held his very first press conference about COVID really becoming a problem here in New York City. That was March 12th. And what we saw is one of the uh, challenges that you have just mentioned, which is that large number of New Yorkers, largely in Manhattan, but also certainly in certain parts of Brooklyn and Queens, uh, left New York City, which means even though the census could be e easily completed online, they did not necessarily receive the first, the second, the third, or the fourth mailings that the United States Census Bureau sent to each household in New York City, letting folks know, hey, it's time to complete the census, go online and do so. Uh, and so what you had is a situation where people in you know, the the incredible anxiety surrounding the pandemic, leaving New York City, going elsewhere, not receiving the information they needed to get uh, to remind them to complete the census and thus forgetting to do so. We also saw that in certain places around the city where COVID really um, had a very significant impact in terms of community transmission. So certain parts of the Bronx, certainly Corona, North Corona and Queens, Canarsie and Brooklyn, uh, the census self-response rates were absolutely impacted. And this is, of course, for obvious reasons. If you are living uh, in a family, in a community, in a household, in a neighborhood where uh, your first and primary uh, source of concern is how to protect yourselves, your children, your parents, your siblings from not contracting COVID, uh, you know, filling out the census is not necessarily something that might be top of mind for you. And something that you're getting in the mail from the federal government that's reminding you to do so is something you may not necessarily take so seriously. So, you know, it really had an impact on us here in New York City um, at all 
socioeconomic levels, at, uh, in all different sort of demographic categories, in all different boroughs. But what we've done here in New York City is that, you know, through our $40 million uh, Complete Count campaign, which is the city's first ever uh, citywide unprecedented initiative to achieve a complete count, we really made sure that all of the outreach that we were planning on doing that was going to be in-person community organizing, that we turned that uh, right on its head very quickly to reach people uh, where they were at home. So instead of doing hundreds of community events through March, April, and May, we sent millions of text messages to New Yorkers utilizing, uh, you know, the latest technological platforms uh, to ensure that we were reminding New Yorkers to complete the census. We've now reached more than 3 million New Yorkers this way. Uh, we immediately started phone banking New Yorkers. This is a tried and true method of doing outreach. We used a couple of uh, updated technological tools that allowed our volunteers and our staff to be able to phone bank from the comfort of their own homes, utilizing a phone and a computer. We've now reached more than half a million New Yorkers this way. So, you know, we really adapted very quickly to ensure that despite the pandemic, despite the unprecedented challenges and circumstances we were facing, we were still able to reach New Yorkers where they were. And what we have seen um, is that our efforts here in New York City are working. When you compare uh, the increase in the self-response rate uh, in New York City to every other major New York, uh, every other major city in the United States from May 4th to now, we come out on top. We have our self-response rate has increased by 10.4 percentage points. Uh, our, I think our nearest competitor has only gone up by about 8.8. Um, and what this really shows is that if you really are uh, focused, targeted, and uh, responsive in terms of your organizing, that you can make a difference. So before you use the phrase uh, national competition, so I want to segue into something that here in New York City, you recently launched the Census Subway Series. Can you talk a little about that? Absolutely. So <clears throat> uh, one of the ways in which we are now hoping to increase the census self-response rates in various parts of the city that are still lagging uh, is by a little friendly, healthy competition, which, you know, here in New York, uh, we are all no stranger to. So for the next several weeks, I think we started this two weeks ago. We are matching up two different neighborhoods. They're going to be in different boroughs um, up against each other. They're going to be similar in size and demography. You know, we want this to be fair play. Uh, and essentially, whichever one of those neighborhoods uh, is going to have the largest increase in self-response over the period of a given week is going to be the winner. Um, in addition to bragging rights, there are some very, very exciting prizes that uh, residents of these neighborhoods can win. We're running multiple competitions right now. Um, if you are a New Yorker who completes the census now and you submit proof of that completion to us on our website, and I'll give you the web address in just a second, you can win one of uh, many different exciting prizes. Uh, we have several $1,000 seamless gift cards that are available. So this is $1,000 in free food delivery that you can win. We have several uh, memberships to the Museum of Modern Art, annual memberships, a $250 value that you can win. There's going to be one winner per borough every week. And in addition to that, uh, we've partnered with uh, Lyft and City Bike to give away several uh, $50 credits to Lyft as well as free annual memberships to City Bike, uh, you know, which is really, really critical for New Yorkers at this time. Uh, you know, we know that a lot of New Yorkers are still not necessarily comfortable taking public transportation, are relying on services such as for hire vehicles, are also relying on biking to get around. Uh, and so, you know, these are some very exciting prizes that you can win. We encourage all New Yorkers to go to my2020census.gov right now and complete the census. If you have not, that's my2020census.gov. And if you want to enter your, our competition, before you fill out the census, make sure you check out all of the rules at nyc.gov slash census contest, nyc.gov slash census contest. You're going to want to make sure you check out all the rules before you submit. So I've got just a minute left. And what I want to stress to people, or rather what I would like you to stress to people, is how easy it is to fill this out and how long it takes. Can you just let them know for anyone who's like, I don't want to spend an hour doing something like this. What's the reality? Uh, I will tell you the reality is that it takes under 10 minutes. It is. It could not be easier. You simply go online. You don't need any special codes. It's going to ask you for a code. You don't need a code. You simply hit the little link that says I don't have your. I don't have my code. You type in your address, and within a couple of minutes you're done. It's 10 simple questions: your name, your address, a couple of questions about demography, whether or not you rent or own, and that's it. 
Uh, it really couldn't be simpler. Um, personally, I happen you know, to live in a very small household. It took me about three minutes. Um, uh, this is not some complicated government form, and I cannot stress enough just how confidential this is. Your census responses cannot be shared with anyone, not with FBI, not with any law enforcement, not even back with the city of New York. Uh, there's an ironclad federal law on the books, Title 13, that makes it a very serious crime for anyone at the Census Bureau to uh, break the confidentiality of your census responses. And since that law was passed in 1953, it's never been broken. So this is really, truly an easy, safe and confidential process. Amit, thank you so much for joining me here on WBAI today. And I will remind our listeners throughout the show of the website address. Thank you so much, Jeff, for your attention to this important issue. Thanks. Have a great day. Great so to talk to you. Thanks. That, that was my conversation with Amit Singh Bhaga about a very important topic, the 2020 census. There's only a few weeks left to complete the census. If you want to ensure that your district gets the appropriate amount of funding or if you just want to make sure that New York has the same amount of representation in our government or if you want to send a message to our federal government that every person counts, then just take the 10 minutes out of your day. Today, Sunday, perfect day to do this. Later on when you start checking your emails later tonight and prepare for a work week, spend 10 minutes online and just fill out the door and think. The website address, my2020census.gov. Again, that's my2020census.gov. So I want to get to my next guest. This is a familiar voice to our listeners. I'm beaming right now because I'm so excited to have him back on here. He was a pleasure to sit next to uh, when we were back in the studio. This seems like ages ago. Uh, he's a former host of City Watch, Joel Berg. And because like me, Joel was also a volunteer here at WBAI, this was not what we're doing now aren't our full-time jobs. What he did then and what he does now is incredibly important work, advocating for policies and addressing hunger insecurity across our country. Joel is the CEO of Hunger Free America. That was formerly known as the New York City Coalition Against Hunger. This is a nonpartisan national nonprofit group that's working to enact the policies and programs needed to end domestic hunger and ensure that all Americans have sufficient access to nutritious food. And before I get to him, for anyone who's new to the show, Joel is a nationally recognized leader and media spokesman in the fields of domestic hunger, food security, obesity, poverty, uh, food-related economic development, and volunteerism. And he's the author of two books, All You Can Eat, How Hungry is America, and America, We Need to Talk, a self-help book for the nation. Joel Berg, welcome back to WBAI. It's great to have you on. Thanks, Jeff. It's an unmitigated delight to be back. <laughs> sorry we're not sitting across from each other. You know I would have thoroughly uh, enjoyed yeah, that. Sorry on so many levels. But so, uh, g given the fact that, uh, what, 180,000 Americans have died, uh, not being able to be together in person is pretty uh, limited challenge. I agree. I, I just wrapped up a few minutes ago with Amit Singh Bhaga, and we talked about the census. Can you first touch on, uh, before we get to the scope of hunger and security in the country, touch on how uh, hunger insecurity and the census connect? They're absolutely connected. Number one is uh, census numbers determine poverty funding for our programs. And so if we're undercounted, we're underfunded. And two, uh, census data determines how many elected officials we have, uh, whether New York loses some and you know, uh, more uh, conservative states gain some. And when you lose representation, you lose the ability to fight for your progressive causes, including reducing hunger and, and, and poverty. And so Hunger Free America and our New York City division, Hunger Free New York City, we worked uh, closely with Amit and his staff uh, on a grant to uh, conduct a census outreach in, uh, alongside our benefits outreach. And even after our grants ended, we continue to do a lot of work to let people know about the census because it's absolutely vitally tied to reducing hunger and poverty. And some of the same problems we face at Hunger Free America in helping sign people up for programs like SNAP, which used to be called the Food Stamps Program and WIC, which goes to pregnant women and children under five, are some of the very same issues we have convincing people to fill out the census, particularly immigrants, because uh, they're scared to death uh, you know, what could happen to them under this administration. They were scared to death before, uh, and, and, and now they're, they're really worried about stepping outside their house, no, long, no less responding to a questionnaire from the government. 
So even in better economic times, far too many Americans were struggling to put food on the table. Give our listeners a sense of the scope of hunger insecurity in our country since the pandemic began. In New York City, in 2008, when things were supposedly still great, uh, a million New Yorkers, one million New Yorkers and hundreds of thousands of New York City children couldn't always afford enough food. Nationwide, it was about 37 million Americans and about 11 million American kids struggled against hunger. Since the pandemic, uh, Mayor de Blasio has estimated that up to 2 million New Yorkers can't afford enough food, and I think that's probably a pretty realistic uh, number. And, and nationwide, Feeding America has estimated that 55 million Americans are now struggling against hunger, unable to afford enough food. Uh, we did our own survey and found at least uh, four out of ten parents in New York City uh, couldn't always uh, afford enough food for, for their kids. So I'm a little troubled by the, uh, the narrative in some of the mainstream media that, uh, you know, this is now a serious problem. It wasn't a serious problem before, implying that the newly hungry are sort of legitimately hungry. That has real racial and class connotations. The, the best way to put this is people who were poor and hungry before became poorer and hungrier, and uh, people just at the edge of poverty and hunger became poor and hungry. And you just mentioned the disproportionate effect. Where in New York City are we seeing, where did we see before and where are we now seeing the greatest demand for support? Well, the truth is there's hunger in every portion of the city. Even in some of the wealthiest zip codes like the Upper East Side, there are uh, service workers there who uh, don't earn enough to feed their families. But it should be no shock that the greatest places of, of need now are the highest poverty neighborhoods, uh, the South Bronx, uh, parts of, of, of Central and Eastern uh, Queens, certainly Eastern um, and, and, and Central Brooklyn, the North Shore of, of Staten Island, uh, you know, parts of the Lower East Side of Manhattan that haven't been entirely gentrified yet, and, you know, Northern uh, you know, Manhattan, and it's, uh, there's a strong tie between COVID and hunger. When people are malnourished, they have compromised immune systems, and when they have compromised immune systems, they're more likely to get and they're more likely to transmit uh, COVID. Uh, also, hunger and obesity are flip sides of the same malnutrition coin because hungry uh, people can't afford the healthiest food. And so greatest irony in the world is that hunger increases the chances that you'll be obese, have diabetes, have hypertension and heart disease. And all those underlying conditions increase the chance you'll actually uh, die from COVID. So it's this vicious, vicious cycle. And uh, food deficiency and malnutrition and poor nutrition, because people can't afford healthier foods, is one of the key reasons that low-income people and people of color and neighborhoods of color and low-income neighborhoods are the ones suffering most from COVID. So how has hunger-free America had to adapt during the pandemic? How have you been addressing the need or the increased need? We've had to ramp up everything we're doing. We're ramping up our advocacy to get uh, the Republicans in the Senate off their duff and to get the president off his duff about uh, expanded food aid, which was passed by House uh, Democrats nearly 110 uh, days ago. Uh, but we're also increasing our direct work to help people access uh, benefits. Uh, we do a lot of work helping people access SNAP, which used to be called food stamps and WIC and the grab-and-go meals in, in, in New York uh, City, uh, as well as home-delivered meals. And if anyone listening needs help, they can either go to our website at hungerfreeamerica.org or call on Monday, starting at 8 a.m., our National Hunger Hotline at one eight seven seven three hungry That's one eight seven seven three hungry And we also just opened up our first field office. Uh, our main headquarters is in Lower Manhattan. We just opened a field office on Sheridan Road in the South Bronx just a stone's throw from Yankee Stadium, to have people there uh, 
be able to uh, help people access SNAP and WIC and these other benefits to literally pre-screen them and submit their applications. I assume uh, most people listening to a show that's in English speak English, but we also do have uh, Spanish-speaking uh, staff, Cantonese and Mandarin-speaking staff, and Hindi, Urdu, and Bengali-speaking uh, you know, staff, as well as Russian-speaking staff. So we can help New Yorkers in a wide variety of languages in a wide variety of ways. Virtually everyone can get some sort of food help, no matter your income or immigration status. So you mentioned the president getting off his duff. I would normally not say the word duff, but we are radio. Um, what well, is New York, can we say talk us? <laughs> yes. What is most needed now? I mean, you advocate for change. So what actions do you want the presidential administration to take, for Congress to take? What would be most helpful? Well, you know, sometimes there are people to the left of me on BAI, and they got mad at me when I was a host, who basically <laughs> say both sides are capitalist tools and nothing, you know, uh, matters. In this case, that's not just that's just not true. We don't take sides in political campaigns. We're not a partisan organization. But let's let's be frank. There's not equivalence between the two sides. The Democrats in the House, uh, you know, over a hundred days ago, passed a very, very, very significant aid package. It increased funding to a wide variety of Americans, including the most vulnerable Americans, extended unemployment insurance, gave more stimulus payments, and dramatically expanded the food programs. Uh, Mitch McConnell and the Senate Republicans, backed by the White House, have not even scheduled a, a vote or a hearing. Uh, on that package over 100 days. So we desperately need that to pass, and we need to pressure Senate Republicans to get on, on it uh, in the BAI listening area. And, uh, and very few people are represented by Senate Republicans unless there's someone in, in uh, Pennsylvania uh, that, that, that can hear this. So I'd also urge you to contact Senator Schumer and Gillibrand, uh, who have been very supportive of our efforts, but just to reinforce the importance of, 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 of keeping tough, not compromising on a bill that does not expand, you know, food aid, and really holding the Republicans' feet to the fire. I worry very much that the Democrats are losing the messaging war, that a lot of people just, oh, this hasn't happened because both sides are to blame. And that's just not true. The Democrats passed a bill. It's the Republicans who are stopping it. You're listening to WBAI. This is City Watch. Now I'm your host, Jeff Simmons. We're also streaming live at WBAI.org. And I'm talking with Joel Berg, former co-host of City Watch, but also CEO of Hunger Free America. Joel, the new school year starts in a week and a half. You noted earlier this summer that participation in school lunch programs nationwide had plummeted by a quarter during the pandemic. What do you foresee will happen this fall? You know, I'm not an epidemiologist, I'm not a virologist, so I take no position on whether schools should open or not. I do point out, though, that uh, when schools are closed, child hunger will increase. And while Mayor de Blasio was uh, uh, you know, not immediately jumping on closing schools last early spring, uh, people were making fun of him when he said one of the reasons he didn't want to do so was child hunger. And he was right on, on, on that count. It's also true that, uh, that if schools don't reopen in person, there will be more child hunger because of that. On the other hand, obviously children dying and passing on a disease to their, their parents is, is no great uh, shake. So we and the Education Trust and the United Way of New York City have uh, issued a, a statement really calling on the city to detail a complex comprehensive plan on what they're going to do no matter what the status of school opening is vis-a-vis -vis the hunger situation. So far, the city's done actually a, a pretty darn good job on this, but there's going to be a lot more pressure on them if schools partially reopen and some of the federal funding runs out. Uh, we will say it's absolutely offensive that the president and the vice president are using uh, hungry kids as sort of hostages to try to force schools to reopen before they are ready. Uh, the Trump administration, this is an administration that has tried taking away automatic school meals from a million American kids, again, the word chutzpah, you know, one definition of chutzpah is a kid who kills his parents, then when he comes to court he pleads for mercy because he's an orphan. 
Well, another definition of chutzpah is uh, Trump and Pence spending three and a half years trying to take food away from hungry people and then saying, oh, gee, we need to reopen the schools now because kids will go hungry. And in fact, they just turned down the request of school districts around the country. I won't get too deep into the wonkish weeds, but they turned down a request to basically continue to allow free universal feeding in the fall. And and uh, the you know a school official in the District of Columbia said they de- definitely thought that was a strong strong tactic to try to force schools to reopen and and that's clear to to us so uh, it continues to be a challenge no matter what we do to deliver home delivered meals or have people pick up meals at home it's no substitute for you having the captive audience of students at school being able to pick up meals new york city schools generally serve about a million meals a day they provide more food than any entity in america other than the pentagon so it does increase the child hunger problem when when schools are closed but that obviously should not be the only consideration when the schools reopen especially uh there's a new report out of south korea that young kids may uh carry and transmit uh the virus for a very long time even though they have no symptoms so we've got just a few minutes left, and as we're talking about uh, what our uh, current admi- what the current administration is doing, I'm sure you have followed over the last two weeks the uh, the RNC and the DNC. Do you think that the candidates and their validators, their supporters, and all their speeches did they address hunger insecurity in ways that resonated with you, or did they miss the mark? Well, again, uh, let me speak now as a private citizen, not representing my nonpartisan nonprofit group. I will say that the Democratic platform actually specifically addressed hunger uh, and uh, SNAP and WIC. And I believe it's the first time a, a political party platform has addressed hunger and the specific safety net programs in, in, in decades. Both Biden and Harris have come out for increases in, in uh, the, 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 the safety net. Trump and Pence and, and McConnell and his team have, have steadfastly been against those. My only you know, qualm about the Democratic convention is it, it convinced us that Joe Biden and Kamala Harris you know, care, but I don't think it did enough to show us concrete ways that they would improve the lives of working people. And, you know, in, in swing states, both people of color and low-income, uh, you know, rural people, uh, you know, have high levels of, of, of poverty compared to the population as a whole, and have high levels of undervoting. And uh, the Democrats definitely need to do more to communicate that they have policies that will help their lives. They have, you know, very detailed policies on their websites, but that's not necessarily what they communicated in, in the convention. And just from the bit I did watch of, of the Republican uh, convention. Uh, you know, the only thing that gave us a respite from their racism were their lies. And so this combination of lies and, and, and racism, there's some commentators saying that, you know, resonated uh, with people, uh, you know, at least their base, I sure hope not. And their base is shrinking. But the Democrats have to do better in telling people how they're going to improve their lives. So, Joel, I've just got a minute left. Uh, I want to just go off to a completely different topic. For our listeners who've been with WBAI for some time, how are you doing? Our listeners have missed you, I'm sure, and so have I. I've been busier than ever, even, you know, even more so than ever. I probably couldn't have time to host the show, so God bless you for volunteering to do it. (laughs) I'm just working from early in the morning to late at night at least six days a week just because the need is so great. But I, I, I can just close by saying my worst day. My toughest day is better than the best day of the people I represent and low-income New Yorkers and low-income you know, uh, Americans. I may have to work a little longer, but they're literally you know, going without food. They're literally dying at disproportionate numbers of COVID, and so that's what keeps me focused. And so two things. One, what is that hotline again? And also, where can people go to learn more about your organization? If you need food or know someone who needs food, call one eight six six three hungry That's one eight six six three hungry starting at 8 a.m. On, on Monday morning. And if you want to uh, also find out how to get help or you want to volunteer or donate after you donate to BAI and become a BAI buddy, see, I'm still on message, go to <laughs> www.hungerfreeamerica.org. Joel Berg, thanks so much for joining me here again on WBAI. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you for keeping the torch lit. Thank you. So Joel just mentioned 
about becoming a BAI buddy, that's perfect because that's what I want to mention to you before I get to my final guest. Uh, and if you listen to WBAI consistently, you'll hear uh, some of the spots as well where we're talking about our, our face mask. You can. I bought two of these. Actually, I donated $70 to WBAI separate from being a BAI buddy, and I'll explain that in just a moment, so that I could buy two or get uh, two BAI face masks, uh, which say Keep Free Speech Radio Alive, just to be able to illustrate to people that I support the station that I volunteer at, that uh, and I hope you do too. If you are a longtime or a new listener and you would like to support our commercial free non-corporate station there are multiple ways to do it you could become a BAI buddy which is what I do so that I just get a charge on my credit card each month that's my donation to WBAI throughout the year so I don't have to think about you know did I remember to donate because I know that I've always I'm always doing that uh, you could also give a one-time contribution of any amount most people give 15 or 20 dollars if you can afford that, that would be fantastic. Here are the two ways to be able to support BAI at this time. Phone call, 516-620-3602. Once again, 516-620-3602. And the web address is give2wbai.org. That's give2, and that's the number two, wbai.org. Thank you so much for tuning in with us today. I'm going to get to my final guest in just a moment, reminding you that you're listening to City Watch here on WBAI 99.5 FM, streaming live always at WBAI.org. I'm your host, Jeff Simmons, and just a few moments ago, I was talking with Joel Berg, CEO of Hunger Free America and a former City Watch host. So I mentioned at the beginning of the show, the new school year begins in just a few weeks on September 10th. And there's incredible uncertainty about how this is going to roll out, how uh, long any form of in-person instruction will last if the virus unfortunately surges again here in New York City. But one thing is certain, classroom routines are changing. Uh, one example is music education. The National Federation of State High School Associations and the National Association for Music Education recommended against indoor group or ensemble singing. Instead, they recommended to focus on instruments that don't require breath uh, and to focus on music theory work like ear training or chord building. Well, here in New York City, there's an organization called Education Through Music, and Penny Swift is the executive director. This is a nonprofit organization that partners with under-resourced schools in all five boroughs to provide high-quality music education as a core subject. Any regular listeners know that nonprofits are close to my heart, and I recognize the impact that COVID-19 has had on many of them. So whenever I can, I would like to bring you their story. So it's a pleasure today to welcome Penny Swift of Education Through Music to City Watch. Welcome. Good morning. Thank you, Jeff. It's a pleasure to be here, um, and I really want to thank you for having me this morning. So I just gave a very brief description of your nonprofit. Can you talk a little more about your history and the scope of programming and services you provide? Absolutely. So Education Through Music has been in existence since 1991. And most importantly, I would really like to highlight how ETM advocates for equity and access. And as you mentioned, we partner with under-resourced schools in all the five boroughs, not only to provide high-quality but comprehensive and sequential music education. I'd really like to highlight that the music classes uh, that we support are taught by music teachers. Um, they're not teaching artists. This is no different than any other core curriculum subject, such as, such as math or English. Um, we're not a push-in program. We're not a pull-out program. We, we intend and make sure that we provide services to each and every student in the schools that we partner with. Um, our belief is that education through music is a true catalyst for change. Um, it may surprise many people if I were to share that 55% of New York City public schools don't have a music program or a music teacher. Additionally, uh, we focus a great deal of our resources on providing professional development for our music teachers. Um, they are offered more than 100 hours of professional de development. We ensure and dedicate substantial investments to ensure that our teachers are well prepared. We certainly recognize that as a classroom is successful if the teacher is successful. And in addition, we recognize that music provides, you know, transferable skill sets to students 
that are impactful in other academic in, in other academic subjects. So we're now about six months since the pandemic essentially shut down most of New York City. How has your organization adapted during this time? Well, it would be no surprise that I said it's it's definitely been a challenge, but a challenge that I am so proud to be able to share that our leadership team and our programs team has met with the highest of expectations. Uh, we started planning for remote distance learning early in March, probably around March 1st, which was ahead of schools officially being closed, um, which I believe was truly crucial for our staff and our students' success. I really couldn't be prouder of the team, especially our heroic teachers. Uh, the work they have do, that they have been doing is, is, is mind-boggling. Um, schools were closed on March 13th, and only 10 days later, our 50-plus teachers were ready to provide remote distance classes, classes and lessons to all of their students. And this is a true testament to the work of the programs team on behalf of Education Through Music. Um, each of our teachers has become a producer, uh, an editor, a videographer, in addition to continuing their role you know, as very thoughtful, reliable inspiring music educators. Uh, educators. Um, because of my colleagues' commitment to our students, ETM was able to provide essentially uninterrupted service to the students at our partner schools, and we continue to do so in the coming school year. Um, I'd also be remiss if I didn't share how supportive and, and, uh, and unwavering our board of directors of education through music has been during these unprecedented times. So I have to say, you know, I'm someone who uh, back in high school and middle school, uh, you know, I, st I was not a good uh, student when it came to learning an instrument. I remember struggling to to play the clarinet. But what mattered to me was also having someone there who could help me because it was so hands on. So how do you adjust to something like this? How do your teachers adjust to this where you have to do it virtually? Because I can imagine that it can be um, more challenging. But how do you overcome that? Great question. So, you know, there are so many reasons why uh, virtual learning has been more difficult for educators, you know, especially music educators, for all the reasons you mentioned. But I, what, what I really think the shift to distance learning has reminded us is that ETM focuses on music education, you know, not just for the sake of music education, but for the sake of the whole child and the whole child's learning experience. So instead of just focusing on, you know, on the physical elements of music education, we've been able to focus more on the mental and emotional needs of our students, which has been quite vital during this time. And we really try to meet those in an unprecedented classroom setting. So, uh, you know, I mentioned school starts and just a week and a half, actually, if you think about it. As you look at the remaining part of 2020, what are your hopes? Well, it comes as no surprise that, you know, COVID-19 has, uh, really deeply disrupted our economy, and we're seeing that play out dramatically in our schools this fall. Uh, we understand there could be a reduction in the cultural arts uh, budgets on behalf of the Department of Education, uh, upwards of 70%. Uh, in New York City in particular, you know, where music and arts education are already threatened, um, this new economic recession is going to devastate our music and arts classrooms in particular. You know, with that being said, I am hopeful that school leaders, educators, and families will remember that music is part of a well-rounded education, and everyone will join ETM in finding new ways to provide access to high-quality music education, no matter a child's background or their zip code. Our students absolutely, positively, without hesitation, deserve no less. You know, and then on a very personal note, I really hope for a return to normal. You know, I truly worry about the stress, the anxiety, and the depression that the pandemic has caused on our most vulnerable communities, our students, our elderly population. And I worry about all the, the typical memories that are made at family gatherings that, that have had to be postponed. So uh, as far as, as we look ahead, what types of support do you need most now? So what we really need now, uh, I would say, are two things I would like to highlight, is support through you know, financial contributions and through advocacy. Um, education through music, we hire, we train, and mentor our music educators. And we need support from donors to, show, to ensure that we're preparing our teachers to teach, 
with all the excellence and under any and all circumstances. Uh, beyond supporting ETM and our mission, we need everyone to keep the drumbeat going, no pun intended there, <laughs> about the importance of music education in our schools. You know, as a city, we must continue to demand, absolutely demand, and I highlight that, that access to music be equal for all of our students. So you mentioned at the beginning of this conversation, you were founded in 1991. Uh, you know, I work with a lot of nonprofits and I'm always like, wait, that means you have a 30th anniversary coming up. But before you hit the, I guess, the actual anniversary, you also have another event coming up to raise awareness uh, uh, about the much needed for much needed funding for music education in the city. Can you talk a little about that? I would love to. Thank you. So our, you know, now virtual gala. Uh, Just Keep Music Alive is now scheduled for October 15th. I really want to share that it is free for anyone to attend. Um, I believe tuning into this is a vote for music education. And we are so honored this year to welcome Joshua Bell, who's a classical violinist, Mark Cohn, who is a Grammy Award winner for Best New New Artist in 1992, Uh, Norm Lewis, a Broadway singer and television actor, and Kelly O'Hara, uh, Tony Award winner, um, and the legendary Quincy Jones. Um, and this is all to you know, provide critical funds necessary for tens of thousands of New York City students rely on education through music. So I invite everybody listening in to tune in on October 15th to our Just Keep Music Alive virtual gala. So that leads me to my last question. Where should they go? How can people learn more about your organization and about the event? Well, that's great. Thank you. Uh, so the best way to reach us is by visiting our, our website uh, via www.etm, etm for education through music, etmonline.org, or by visiting any of our social media channels by searching at etmonline.org on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. But I really encourage everybody to, and share that the best way to learn about us uh, is to watch the videos that we post on all of our social media channels. Um, that way you can really see the passion of our teachers and the students who really drive us to do this great work. Penny Swift, thank you so much for joining me here today on WBAI. Thank you, Jeff, for this opportunity. So I've got just a few minutes left, so I want to return to my original topic before I close. The census. If you have not filled it out, ask yourself why. Does it matter to you? Is it because you're worried about how the information is going to be used? Think about what Ahmed said at the start of the show today. I filled it out. I did it within, I think it was the first day these became available online. I don't even think it took me the 10 minutes they say it does because they're very easy questions. As he said, you don't need any special codes. You don't need uh, you know, to gather a lot of paperwork and have it ready. It's asking you who lives in your household and basic information, and not even who as far as their, their names, if I remember correctly. I think it was just trying to get all you know basic information down. That is so important to do. And you know what? I did so because I want to make sure my district still has ample representation in government, but also because... I'm not going to feel threatened by anything that our president might claim he wants to do to obviously cut down on participation. The same way I applied for my absentee ballot already and plan to vote as soon as I can this fall. Because your voice in this census and your vote this November, no matter who you support, that can, they count. They matter. And we should speak up, speak out when we can. And these are two ways you can because, again, your vote and your voice count. So fill out your census when you get a chance and get an absentee ballot if you are particularly concerned about what the situation is going to be like uh, in the general election this November. If you're just tuning in, we are in our fund drive now and we do need your support to be able to continue to provide commercial-free, non-corporate radio like you've been listening to this past hour. WBAI has been part of the fabric of New York for more than 60 years, if you can believe it, 60 years now. And yeah, we faced some obstacles during that time. Remember last uh, October, we were off the air uh, for a month because of the the takeover that took place. Well, we came back. However, because of that month off, we lost significant funding. So we've been stretching out our fundraising throughout this year. And I know constantly reminding you that we want to stay on the air. We want to continue to bring you this non-corporate, non-commercial uh, voice. So 
Once again, here's the phone number to call to just donate. Please do it in the name of this show, City Watch, or in the name of any of your favorite shows at WBAI. The number to call is 516-620-3602. Again, that's 516-620-3602. Or you can go online, and that website address is give to and that is the number two, give to WBAI.org. Give to WBAI.org. And frankly, uh, uh, Joel mentioned, uh, I often mention, many of our hosts mention, we're volunteers. We do this because we want to continue to bring you a diversity of voices and perspectives. So I'm happy to be part of the WBAI family, and I hope that you'll uh, continue to show your support. I want to thank my guests. Amit Singh Baga, Deputy Director of the New York City Census 2020 Office, Joel Berg, CEO of Hunger Free America and our former City Watch host, and just a few moments ago, Penny Swift, CEO and Executive Director uh, of uh, Education Through Music. And as always, in the studio, the voice you don't hear, my wonderful, amazing engineer, Sean Rhodes, who makes the show happen each week. I'll be back this Thursday at 5 o'clock with Driving Forces, and I will dig deeper into an issue I just touched on with Penny, the new school year. Among my guests are Randy Weingarten, who leads the American Federation of Teachers, and Randy Levine, Policy Director at Advocates for Children. And next Sunday, my co-host David Brand will be back at 10 o'clock with more perspective on New York City. I'm Jeff Simmons, your host of CityWatch, and I'd like to thank you for tuning in today. Have a wonderful day. records everyone living in this country. It's written in the Constitution and comes in a questionnaire that counts everyone who lives at your address on April 1st. The data can be used to inform funding for services like fire stations, schools, clinics, and representation that affect your community. How will 2020 census data be used? Where there are more people, there are more needs for public services. That's why the census is used by the government to inform funding decisions each year. How does the 2020 census affect representation? There are 435 seats in the House of Representatives. These get distributed to the 50 states by population, and an accurate census response helps your state get the right amount of seats. States with smaller populations get at least one, while states with larger populations might get more. $10 a month. It's the price of a gigabyte of data for that iPad you never use. It's two overpriced coffees you ordered when you forgot to look at the menu. It's your overzealous attempts to meet the credit card minimum at the bodega on the corner. But $10 a month could be a lot more. Become a BAI buddy and commit to a recurring monthly donation to WBAI. This money will help us continue to broadcast the thoughts and perspectives of the progressive public. A BAI buddy is also not without perks. Your monthly contribution will earn you a WBAI tote bag and a member card offering zip car sales, discounted meals at select restaurants, and a handful of other benefits. You will also become a full voting member of WBAI, and our diverse programming will reflect your voice. Go to give to WBAI.org and become a BAI buddy to support free speech radio today. Thanks to you. Thank each and every one of you for coming by.
And while he's thanking those folks, let me take this opportunity to thank all of you, our listeners and support staff, our contributors, our interns, the volunteers, producers, and the entire crew that works countless hours to bring WBAI into your lives. First and foremost, please listen close. Take your time, wash. Use a lot of soap from the front to the back, back to the front. Sing the hook where you at. That's exactly what we want. You got your low fever, shortness of breath, slight low cough. Feel it in your chest. You should call your doctor. Doctor know what's best. Don't go running to the hospital because you could be a threat. Coronavirus. Don't you get it? Social distance, non-existence, don't resist this, get gone in an instance, if you miss this. I'm Rowan Brooks. You are listening to WBAI New York.